Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Not Your Average Joe, the podcast that'll make anyone a little less average. I'm your host, Joe Franco, and today's episode will be poetic. It will be like an audiobook, and it will be so full of wisdom that you're going to run to your local bookstore and buy all 10 books and pre-order the 11th book of today's guest. She is a New York Times bestselling author, a brilliant thinker, a dear mentor of mine that I'm so grateful to even have in my life, and somebody that I can now call a friend. She's one of my biggest creative inspirations, and she agreed to be on my podcast, which is wild because she's been interviewed by Oprah, not once, but twice. So, the guest that you're about to get inside of the mind of is Danny Shapiro. And the first thing I want to talk about is how I actually met Danny because the story itself has some good nuggets and takeaways in it. So a few years ago, I realized that I had been writing in my journals on my own for years and I hadn't really honored the fact that I did have this huge craving inside of me to be creative. And my personal creativity has always been in writing. I was that kid that would write long, elaborate birthday cards to all of my friends, to my family. I was writing little short stories when I first learned to write in English. And I was actually asked to do some writing programs in school. But I guess as I got older and as you start learning that creativity is not a career option, you you go further and further away from it. But it didn't stop me from writing in my journals. I then became, you know, an entrepreneur, a content creator, which is cool because I was able to be in a creative world, but my true art in my writing was neglected until a few years ago when I woke up and had this realization and I said, enough is enough. I want to honor this. So I started telling everybody in my circle of friends and I have an editor for a project that I'm working on that's not quite a book, but it's in the in the book world. And she was reading my intros to sections of of this project that I submitted and she was like wow Joe you're a writer and I'm like yeah thank you I've always wanted to be one and you know I I think I'm at this point where it's time to dive into this creativity and into this writing I want to be around writers who are better than me I want to learn do you know of any conferences or workshops so I put it out there And this editor said, I don't have anything on the top of my head, but I'll keep you in mind. I start traveling. This is last fall. I start traveling around. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Croatia, and I get an email from this editor. And the subject line was, urgent, apply in three days. I open the email. The body said, Joe, I think this is exactly what you're looking for. And this is one of the best writing conferences in the industry. So apply, but you need to submit 5,000 words in three days. Do you think you can handle it? Because if you get in, this is exactly what you need to take your storytelling to the next level. And I was like, what? You know, I'm going to try. So I put my head down, wrote 5,000 words in three days, submitted and was refreshing my email every single day after I submitted. And finally, a few months later, I get a notice from the conference saying, hey, Joe, you've been accepted to Sirenland. We're so excited. If you want to partake in this conference, you need to submit your information and your deposit. I was, my life was made 
suddenly writers thought I could write. And that to me was a sign from the universe. I got to do this. So I submitted my deposit, submitted my information, and I get a response right away from Michael Marin, who's Danny's husband. And his response said, hey, Joe, we got your information. By the way, it looks like you live 10 minutes down the street from us. How would you like to come over this weekend and we'll have some drinks and tell you about all of the brilliant writers living right in this neck of the woods? (laughs) Jaw dropped. Like, how are you telling me that this is what happens when you take a leap into your creativity? It doesn't make sense. But I guess it makes all the sense in the world because when you honor your own desires, the universe meets you halfway. So that's the story of how I met Danny and Michael. And I get to the conference in Positano, Italy, which was another amazing, life-changing experience. And I met all of these brilliant writers. And it was then that I realized that when you're around other creative people, your entire life enhances because they just see life differently. They're the kind of people that ask questions that have been well thought out. They're listening, they're actively listening because the truth about writing and and creating art in general is you need to be mindful, you need to pay attention because that's the only way that you're gonna be able to recreate that beauty or that feeling, that pleasure, that pain. That's the only way you're gonna be able to reciprocate that in your art whether that's prose or a paintbrush. Kill the intro, sis. You know she's not your average Joe, not your average Joe. She's not your average Joe. Hi, Danny. I'm so happy to see you. It's so good to see you. You know, when you weren't sitting at your desk, my favorite thing was seeing how many books are hugging the walls of your office oh yeah just books everywhere that's only one wall your house is what I aspire my house to be in a few years it's very literary focused it's like a library in there that's that's been a a lifetime of accumulation yeah okay we have a lot to get into first of all I'm very grateful that you're in my life you are such a mentor of mine and the way that we met is like you said this thing to me that I'll never forget. You said, maybe I should have, um, you said, what did you say? You were like, Joe, I think you were born on a star or something because the way things happen to you. And I'm like, yeah, the luck that I have doesn't make any sense. And that luck brings people like you into my life. Well, I would say you also make your own luck. And, you know, you apply to this writer's conference that, you know, Michael, my husband and I run in Italy, um, having absolutely no idea that we live 10 minutes from each other in this little community in rural Connecticut. I mean, that, that was some kind of magic. Um, but, but you applied, otherwise we might never have um, found each other. It's really wild. And it takes a little bit of research and a little bit of vision, seeing before things actually come to fruition. And so today, the conversation will be a bunch of creative, inspiring tidbits, words of wisdom. For anybody who hasn't picked up one of your books, can you please give us a rundown of your literary career, of your history? And I want to know all of it, like from the very beginning to now. How much time do you, <laughs> you know, have? We'll get martinis after this <laughs> at some point. But, you know, let's do like the short version, starting off at the beginning. Okay, I'll give you the Cliff's Notes from the beginning. People often ask me if I always knew that I wanted to be a writer or was whether I always was a writer. I always wrote and I always read, but I didn't grow up knowing that you could be a writer. I had no, um, I didn't, I wasn't surrounded by writers. 
you know, the way I am today, the way, the way that I raised my son, where everyone seems to be a writer or an artist or making something. I grew up in the suburbs uh, in New Jersey and I read books constantly, but the idea that somebody actually spent her life writing them was not, not something I knew, it was not, not on my radar. I did end up though, when I went to university, I chose a school and this was luck. I didn't choose it because it had a great creative writing program. I actually chose it because it had a great music program and I played the piano pretty seriously, a college called Sarah Lawrence. And once I was there, what I discovered was that there was this writing faculty of full of amazing writers because Sarah Lawrence was only about a half an hour north of New York City. So people were living in New York and living their lives as writers and then once or twice a week coming to college to teach. And they became my first mentors. And I began writing more and more seriously. And eventually, it was not linear, but eventually I stayed at Sarah Lawrence and I went to graduate school. And the novel that I wrote when I was in the graduate writing program became my first novel. It was published in 1990. I was a baby writer. And I think it probably should be said too that I went from really having kind of no idea what I was going to do with my life and being kind of, you know, in a state of sort of rebellion and having lost my way in a lot of ways to suddenly having my first novel coming out and being described as precocious, um, you know, at the age of 26 or 27 or whatever I was. So yeah, that's how it started. And that first novel was called Playing With Fire. Nobody reads it anymore. And that's fine with me. I was learning. I was learning in public. I was learning how to write. But it gave me, I never discount it or dismiss it because it was my, it was my first real professional step. And, and it allowed me to begin my life as a teacher as well. I got hired to teach creative writing at Columbia University based on that first book. I then wrote my second novel and then I wrote my third novel. Those were all my early works. And then in, and they all, they all came out and had nice, you know, lives in the world. And then my, I, my first memoir um, is a book called Slow Motion. And I, I, that book came out in 1998. And the story behind having written a memoir at all was that I kept on having this sense that there was something that was haunting my fiction, that there was something that I didn't yet know, or that my life circumstances and some of the things that had happened in my life were finding their way into my fiction, but I wasn't in control. For example, um, in each of those early books, there was some kind of sudden accident or something that happened that was shocking to my main character. And that had happened in my own life. In, in my own life, when I was 23, my parents had been in a, a very bad car accident uh, that had killed my father and had very badly injured my mother. And I was their only child. And, you know, I ended up with a lot on my shoulders, both in terms of taking care of my mother and also my tremendous grief about my dad. And so that was finding its way into my work, which as it would, but I wasn't in charge. It, it was the image I always have is, you know, how you see somebody walking a dog and the dog is sometimes walking them. You know, they're like being pulled along by the dog. I was being pulled along by the dog. And I wanted to be walking the dog. I wanted the dog to heal, the dog being my books. 
so I wrote my first memoir almost as a curative and that book slow motion met with some success and I was on Oprah and all sorts of stuff happened. And I figured after slow, slow motion that I would go back to writing fiction, which I did my next two novels, family history and black and white were indeed both more mature novels. And I was more in control of them. And I'm very proud of those, those books. So slow motion really did help me as a writer in that way. But then I found myself going back to memoir, which was not what I anticipated doing. I assumed I would continue on and, 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 and be fully back in, in writing fiction. But I, um, something pulled me back and I wrote um, my memoir devotion um, that came out in 2010. And then I wrote my book about writing, which was a different kind of book for me, still writing, which was very much a book that I thought of as my sort of love letter to writers, my, you know, I wanted it to be a companion to writers is how I thought of it. I wanted it to live on people's bedside tables. Even when we were talking about the, the cover design for that book, I wanted it to be a book that would look good on a bedside table. Like that, that mattered to me. And then after, it, after still writing, I, um, I wrote an, another memoir that I'm very proud of uh, called Hourglass. And the subtitle of Hourglass is Time, Memory, Marriage. And my books, my memoirs at that point really became more like inquiries. I wanted to think about what it meant to be married over a long stretch of years um, as I was and am, and, and what it means to form yourself alongside another person for the duration. Because I felt, you know, we were in it for, we are, were and are in it for the duration. And I wanted to like inquire into those questions. What does it take and what does it mean? And how does time work for and against you in life? And how do our memories operate? So that was Hourglass. And, and then after Hourglass, after I wrote Hourglass, I really believed I was done with that kind of work. And what I would tell anyone who, who would listen was I've broken up with narrative. I'm not interested in chronology. I love writing in these little snippets and figuring out how the puzzle pieces fit together. And then this huge kind of gorilla of a story came crashing into my life in the form of a discovery that, that there had been a huge secret in my family. And, you know, I kind of always, I mean, I always knew that there were secrets in my family. I was always writing to kind of figure out what they were in some way or another. I always wrote about secrets, both in my novels and my, and my memoirs, most of my work. But what I hadn't known was that I was the secret and that my dad, my, my beloved dad who died when I was 23 had not been my biological father and that my parents had known that, that they had pursued having a child uh, using um, a, a sperm donor because they couldn't have biological children of their own. None of this was something I knew. So I was the secret. And I wrote my most recent book, Inheritance, that came out in 2019. And that um, has been just this huge journey. The book became a big bestseller. Um, it impacted many, many people. Uh, it impacted policy around um, secrecy, around, you know, identity and 
genetic testing and all this kind of crazy stuff. There was a story that I didn't know was my story. I kept on saying when, when inheritance, when I first made the discovery, I wish I could, I don't want this story. I want to send the story back to the story store, you know, let somebody else have this story, but it turned out, return the story, uh, get a refund. Um, But as it turned out, it was the story of my life and it was ultimately an enormously liberating um, thing to find out what had always been there. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book for my podcast right now. And the epigraph of it is if you bury your secrets, you're burying them alive. Wow. And I read that and I thought, whoa, whoa, that is true. I've said that in many different ways, but that was really like this magnificent thing. The secret of my identity was buried alive and it was, you know, it was going to come out. And I'm glad that it came out when I was still, you know, young enough and vibrant enough and with enough time ahead of me and enough people still around that I could talk to about it and interview and discover the truth of my identity, which is what that story is. So that brings us pretty much up to the pandemic I traveled nonstop for inheritance for about a year and a half. I went on a 40 city tour, you know, in, in the U S I was about to start touring internationally and that's when COVID hit and I stopped. I mean, I did a lot of things virtually, but I stopped traveling and things got for me as they did for many of us, very, very quiet. And after this, I mean, to write, to, to write, things have to be quiet. But I had been in this frenzy of activity for quite some time. And it was in the quiet that I rediscovered about 100 pages of a novel that I had put in a drawer after my memoir devotion. I, I, I started this novel and then I couldn't find my way. I loved it and I loved the characters and I loved the story but it was eluding me. There was something I didn't yet know, something yet I didn't yet understand. So for, for more than 10 years, that, that, that novel sat in a drawer. And during the pandemic, I was cleaning out my office closet, that very office that you see behind me. And I was I literally like had boxes and hefty bags and, you know, I was throwing things away in my office. And there was this neat little pile of manuscript pages And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and reread these. Not because I ever thought I would go back to them. I didn't. I really thought this is the one that got away. It's too bad. I love these characters, but I couldn't figure it out. And then suddenly I realized it's a book that takes place in a whole bunch of different periods of time. And um, what I had written thus far took place on one night in 2010 and then on one night on New Year's Eve of 1999. So essentially one night in 20, you know, in, in the year two, just about the year 2000, one night in the year 2010. And I suddenly this like lightning bolt went off and in my head and I thought, and now it's 2020 and who, who have these people become? What has happened in their lives? Who was the 11 year old boy? What would have happened to him? Who is the chef, the, you know, the young chef of the restaurant in Brooklyn? What would have happened to him? Who is the elderly doctor? 
you know, where would he be? Would he still be with us? How would he be riding out the pandemic? And I, everything about this novel became clear to me in an instant, but it, it needed all that time. And I needed all that time and time needed all that time for me to be able to understand what it was. And, and so that's a, a novel called Signal Fires that's coming out in just about a month. Uh, and that brings us to the present, Yay. Joe. I just can hear you speak all day long, which is why I love your podcast and you. And when I read Signal Fires, thank you for the advanced copy. I told you this. I sent you a message. I was like, it's so beautiful reading this because it's like I get to curl up in the corner of your mind through these characters. And it's so fascinating. It's a work of art. That book is a work of art because of the timelines. And I, I didn't know the backstory which is insane to think that it took 20 years for that to ferment. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I always say to writers starting out and to students, it, you know, it takes what it takes in terms of time. There is no, I mean, yeah, there are the kinds of books that are formulaic and that writers have figured out a formula for and write in a certain way. So a book a year or two books a year or a book every two years, whatever it is, but in my experience with the kinds of books that I write, it takes what it takes. And this one had its own journey. And I'm so glad and so thankful that I was able to, to rediscover these characters because I love them so much. And I really felt like I needed to live my life over that 15 years or so in order to sort of live up to them. Like they needed me to, they, they, they just sort of went to sleep and they, they were like Rip Van Winkle and they just went to sleep for those years and they stayed exactly who they were. And I needed to grow into who I was and have the life experience that I had, including the story that I just told about finding out that my dad hadn't been my biological father, finding out that there was a man out there who was my biological father and being able to actually find him and meet him. All of those things actually needed to happen for me to be able to, or even, you know, my husband, Michael, who, who, who you, you know, um, was, was sick three, four years ago. And I needed to go through that uh, to understand certain things about life that I didn't fully understand. And all of that became like a rich stew that and then the the pandemic and the heartbreak of the pandemic and the way i think maybe more than anything that we all came to understand how connected we are that we all came to understand how interdependent we are all of that needed to happen for me to write a book about those connections and about that inter interdependence. This is so fascinating to have read it and hearing this behind the scenes because i can immediately point out chapters of the book, scenes in the book that play with your individual, your personal life's timeline, but you would never know that. I find it so fascinating now being in this world of meeting writers like you and all of the writers that I met at the conference. It just made me look at books differently because I think, and I'm curious about the listeners or about other people, you know, friends in your life who aren't necessarily in the writing world. I don't know if many people pick up books and think, a human's heart, mind, life experience powered this writing. 
So it's like only through lived experience can you really produce a genuine book. Maybe people present situations and stories that aren't their own, but it probably doesn't weigh as heavily as when you have personally gone through something and you know the gravity of that. So you can write it, whether it's a memoir or it's fiction, because the feelings are still very much real. But I guess my question to most people is like, do people realize that authors are pouring their hearts and souls onto pages? Do you think they do? I think they do. On some level, I do. I mean, why is there an author photo, uh, you know, on the back of a book? Why, when you're reading a book that you really love, do you sometimes um, turn to that photo and just kind of look at the author for a moment? I think it's because on some level, maybe not consciously, but people do realize that I think every sentence a writer writes is personal. People sometimes mistake that for that means it's autobiographical. It's not necessarily autobiographical in the sense that this happened to the author. I mean, I am not an elderly doctor. I am not, you know, a, a, a chef, you know, a, a, ma a male chef with a restaurant in Brooklyn. I'm not an 11-year-old boy. I'm not an older woman with Alzheimer's. I'm not a Hollywood studio executive. Uh, I'm not an angry dad. I mean, you know, I mean, all of these are characters in my book. I'm none of these, but... The feelings, I think what allows a writer inside um, characters like that is this kind of radical empathy or compassion and love. Not your average Joe. Takeaway number one of many, good writing requires radical empathy and an overall interest in the human condition. And that just means that you're going to become a better listener if you become a writer. After the break, we talk about tips for aspiring writers and why so many people write despite it being one of the toughest careers to break into. And then Danny shares the reality of her own uphill battle with the finances and the ups and downs of a creative journey. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I mean, even the characters in my book who are who are who, who may present themselves somewhat difficult, you know, as, as difficult humans. I'm thinking of one in particular. I still, I loved him. Um, I, I got him. I understood him. I understood what powered his anger. Um, and, you know, all of that kind of, that has to go into it, which is why I think, you know, the old adage, the writing adage, write what you know. I mean, I think sometimes people think write what you know means you can only write out, you know, out of your own experience, which I don't believe. But I do think you, you, one writes out of kind of one's own obsessions, fascinations, like felt experience, you know, what, what we feel, you know, grief, 
loss, love, joy, longing, you know, erotic charge, you know, tension, frustration, all of, all of that goes into the stew that makes a book and that creates these characters that then have lives on the page. And I do think readers get that. I don't think they sit back and think about it necessarily, but I think they get that. What a cool concept. Not your average Joe. Takeaway number two. For all of the aspiring writers out there, don't take write what you know literally. It's more like write what you observe intentionally and write what you're able to empathize. I'm now fascinated. Like every single book I read, I'm thinking about the source behind the words. And I'm like, I wonder what that person's life was when they were writing. I wonder how much of this transformed them as a writer. Which brings me to my question. They say, I think I actually heard this in Sirenland, that books should transform the writer as much as it should transform the reader. So as somebody who's written 11 novels now, 11 different books, is that correct? Can you look back at yes. those books and say, this transformed me in this way, this transformed me in this way? How do you look at that? Like for Signal Fires, your latest book, how did that transform you? That's such a great question. I do think that looking back, each book is a journey that is a transforming one. Um, one of the ways that I know that is that I think about periods of time in my life. Um, like if, if you said 1993 or, you know, 1998 or 2005, I would relate it to one of two things, either what book I was working on or what book had just come out. Um, and the other, the other, you know, my son was born in 1999. I would relate to where, you know, where I was in my life as a parent. So it's almost like it's as, it's as, it's as profound. Um, it's, it's, it's like having 11 babies. There's a kind of, you know, I don't know yet about signal fires. I don't know yet how it will transform me because part of what's transforming is the process of bringing the book into the world and having the book meet its readers and having conversations about that book. That's part of the way I think the writer comes to understand even what it is that she's done. I mean, ask a writer who's just finished a book to talk about, like really just, just finish it to talk about the book. And usually that writer is completely like flustered and inarticulate because we don't know. And I mean, ask a writer in the middle of writing a book, tell me, what are you writing? It's the worst question. I, I, I can't talk about it. Um, not because I'm being private or withholding, but because I don't know yet. I don't know how to talk about it because it's something I'm still making. And that's even still true after the work has been revised 10,000 times and being, you know, gone through the process of being about to come out into the world like I am now with signal fires. I am just starting to learn what it is that I've done in that book by virtue of what people's responses are to it and having conversations about Which it. Which is so fascinating because you spend so much time in silence writing, writing, revising, writing in your own head. And then now coming up next month, it'll be truly unleashed and you have little to no control over what happens, which is very concerning and, and beautiful at the same time. You've done this 11 times, or this will be the 11th time. But do you ever feel, like, how do you feel right now? Let's talk about this 
imposter syndrome question. Like, mm. do you feel imposter syndrome? Because I feel like most people, oh, always. Can, there's no way a New York Times bestselling author can feel imposter syndrome or is there? Always, always. It never gets easier. It never goes away. Well, I'll say a few things, a few different things about imposter syndrome. I think it's very, it's very different now in certain ways than it was, say, when my first novel was coming out. You know, I remember the first time that, that I was able to answer the question, what do you do? You know, it was like I was living in New York City, uh, which meant that I was, you know, sometimes in the back of taxis. And you would have conversations always with, with, with the cab driver. A cab driver would say, you know, what do you do? And I would say, I'm a writer. Oh, have I read everything you've written? Well, I'm writing my first time. Well, I'm in graduate school. And then, you know, sort of, or, you know, someone at a cocktail party or a dinner would ask the question and you would see their eyes sort of glaze over like, yeah, right, honey. You know, sure, sure you are. And so I was looking forward to the day that I could answer the question with something a little more, a little more substance. And a, a, a taxi driver said, so, you know, what do you do? I'm a writer. Like, oh, yeah. What, have I read anything? Well, I actually have a first novel coming out and it's uh, it'll be out in, you know, a couple of months. Is it is it is it a bestseller? Is it going to be a movie? I mean, that was literally the and I just realized, oh, if that's going to be the the metric by which I experience my own self-worth, that is going to be a, a slippery slope. It's, it's, and, and it's, and it's a hard one to not slide down because we live in a world where that matters and people's accomplishments and their resumes and their CVs and their social media presence. And, you know, all the ways in which we measure success are so, they're so much more visible now than they were when I was that you know, young writer in the back of a taxi. Um, so of course it's impossible to not care, but I don't, I think I probably don't feel quite the same way as I did when I was, you know, that writer with the first book coming out, but I will, you know, you're reminding me of something that I think is worth saying that also goes back to the transformation question, which is that my memoir devotion, when that book came out up until the time that book came out, I was terrified of public speaking, which is really a problem when you have to be out there in the world, re giving readings, speaking in public, giving interviews, being on stages, being on panels. And every time I was, I would truly experience panic. I mean, real sort of heart stopping panic, like to the point where I would, you know, take a little bit of a you know sedative before I would get on stage, any stage because I thought I would die if I didn't die. I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was, it was, it was awful. And writing devotion, something shifted in me while I was writing that book, because it was the questions at the center of that book had to do with what do I believe, you know, and, and this sort of existential early midlife crisis of, realizing that I, I really had no idea. Um, and I'd been raised in a deeply religious home and I had sort of fled all that. And I had this young son who was asking me all sorts of questions, those profound existential questions, you know, where do we go when we die? You know, do you believe in God? And I realized I had no, um, I wanted to explore the question of what I believed. 
And that exploration took me all sorts of really amazing places. And among the places it took me where I got to know a lot of um, spiritual leaders. I got to know rabbis and priests and Buddhists and just like deep spiritual thinkers. And I started really coming to the realization that we all feel the same feelings. We all experience fear and anxiety and imposter syndrome and feeling less than, and we all have those voices in our heads that say, you know, I can't do this or so-and-so does this better, or who do I think I am? Or how, you know, how dare I like, who, you know, what audacity to think that I have something to say and that I could have a voice and blah, blah, blah. And all of that, um, I think plagues you when you have to get up in front of an audience and something shifted. And thank goodness it did, because I ended up having to get up in front of a lot of audiences with that book. And I went back on Oprah with that book and had a 75 minute interview with her for Super Soul Sunday. And I, I could not, younger Danny could not have done that. I truly would have just dropped dead of nerves. I, I was, you know, and I remember actually on that, I remember Oprah's producer taking me into the studio. We're about to record this interview and I'm walking down this hallway. Okay. This is actually a great story about imposter syndrome. I'm walking down the hallway of ev that is lined with photographs of everyone that Oprah has ever interviewed. So I'm looking at, you know, Tom Cruise and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and, you know, like just this, just this hall of luminaries. And I'm, you know, if there ever was, you know, like an imposter syndrome nightmare, it would be that. And the producer just looked at me as we were about to cross the threshold into the studio. And she said, all you need to do is be yourself. And that could sound like sort of simplistic, but it wasn't, it was profound because you have to know what that self is in order to be that. And, all, and you can't be anybody else. Everybody else is taken. You really can only be, you know, yourself. And, and that was a tremendous reminder. And also just the feeling of being able to get up in front of audiences. I mean, I used to be terrified getting up in front of 10 people in a crowded smoky bar to, you know, give a reading from my like shaking hands. And now suddenly I was in situations where I would be on a stage in front of thousands of people. And the feeling I had, even looking out into the audience and not being able to, you know, just this sea of faces, the feeling I had is we are one, you know, we are one. I mean, what, what I am describing, if I can really talk about my life experience in a way that is true, in a way that is, you know, authentic, in a way that accesses my own vulnerability and isn't afraid of it. If I can do that, then you are going to feel that because you feel that too. And, you know, it's the putting on a kind of act that really is the, you know, the, that, that's, that's, I can't do that. And so I have to be able to fully embody my own, you know, my, my own story, my own life. And when I can do that, 
that's my superpower and I lose all sense of imposter syndrome and anxiety. And that book taught me that. Not Your Average Joe, takeaway number three, and this one is really important and I've been studying creativity for a while. In any true piece of art, your own transformation is very much a part of the process. It is the process. An author or a painter or a musician or a movie maker needs to transform on the journey to make that piece of art. Because when you're injecting your own transformation into a body of work, the audience can then receive it and go through their own transformation. And it's incredible. I've seen this with even simple birthday cards. If I am crying while writing that birthday card, the recipient will actually shed a tear when they read it. And I'm like, dang, that's a superpower. And I guess it's because that genuine heart and soul that you put into art, that can be transmitted no matter how far away or disconnected you might be from the creator of that artwork. And that is a masterful craft that I would like to get better at over the years. I'm smiling. Like my cheeks are getting sore because I'm just smiling because this is such good stuff, Danny. <laughs> We've talked about this and I told you I'm also horrified of public speaking. You saw me cry as I did my reading for Siren Land. I'm also terrified. And I feel like writing specifically for me, it channels this deep, deep depth inside of me that doesn't come out in many other situations. Because if you're, even if let's say you're public speaking, I'm sure that you can create speeches and convey vulnerability, but writing, I don't know, it just hits a little deeper within me. So the question that I have is how do you find that courage to even start putting that vulnerability on the page. Because when I read Inheritance, I was like, damn, this is one brave woman to be able to put mm. this on paper, have it be a book that becomes a New York Times bestseller where it's like millions of people have read this very traumatizing piece of history that you've turned into art. Where does that courage come from? That's the key, what you just said is that the turning all of that chaos and all of that randomness and all of that pain and all of that secrecy into art, shaping it, shaping it into something that someone who knows nothing about the story can come to and say, oh, me too, not the details, but me too, these feelings. You know, I mean, the story that I was telling in Inheritance was batshit crazy. I mean, you know, not everybody reading it was going to have had that experience but I wanted everyone reading it to feel that sense of that the beautiful thing that we feel when we read, which is identification, compassion, you know, sort of having a new world opened up to you and realizing, you know, that there's a connection there between worlds. But the courage piece of it, you know, one of the things um, I've thought a lot about over the years is the difference between confidence and courage, because we we um, sometimes make the mistake of thinking that they're the same thing and they're not. Uh, confidence, I think, is highly overrated uh, in our culture and in our society. We're supposed to like perform confidence and seem confident, look confident. Courage is about being afraid, really having your heart in your throat and doing it anyway. You know, making that flying leap over that fear. And one of the things in terms of writing I mean, I really feel, believe that writing saved my life. It's how I was able to access my inner world. I had no other tools to access it. 
I could talk to friends. I could be in therapy. I could, you know, think my thoughts. But in terms of really discovering what it was that I thought and believed and, you know, what, what those deepest feelings were, that happens on the page. And if, if, I, if I were there sitting and writing and thinking, oh, millions of people are going to read this, I couldn't do it. I don't think about that. I, I, I'm aware that, that there will be an audience, but I don't think about the audience. I think about um, Kurt Vonnegut once had this great phrase, which was the, an audience of one, um, one person. One, and not someone who's even necessarily going to actually read it, but someone out, you know, just, you're not writing it. In other words, when, you, when we write in our journals, we're not writing for that audience of one. We're writing for ourselves. But when we're writing with the idea that we want to communicate something, that there's, that there's with the intention of this is going to be out in the world, that audience of one is very helpful. Whereas the idea of the world is not very helpful um, because it goes back to that idea of, you know, well, who am I to think I have anything to say? And, you know, that inner censor that, that tells us, oh, just stop, you know, you're, you know, don't, don't, don't write this. So-and-so is going to be hurt. Nobody's going to get it. All of that kind of um, stuff. So there really is something about closing that door, sitting in that chair, shutting, off, shutting out the world and, and allowing the pen, I mean, I'm literally talking in longhand, but like allowing the pen to move across the page, allowing the fingers to move across the keyboard and being willing to see what will happen, being, having the courage to be surprised. You know, uh, something I think about a lot is if, if you're just gonna go into a room and close the door and write what you already know, why do that? I mean, that just sounds boring and, why you know it the, the discovery is part of the process whether you know someone's writing memoir or writing fiction it's all storytelling and it's it's the process that allows for the discovery not your average show takeaway number four if you like many of us out there are suffering from imposter syndrome a tip is to think about producing whatever it is you're doing for a simple audience of one it doesn't need to be made for a million people. And in fact, if you're way too busy thinking about the one million people that could judge you for not being good enough, you'll never have the dedication required to actually start making the art because you're going to be paralyzed by this non-existent future looking criticism that you would never even be able to get because you wouldn't even finish the work does that make sense it's like a catch-22 in short keep your head down do the work and if an audience of more than one person sees it amazing if not you've gotten that idea out of you and that's the whole point so let's switch gears and talk about this process how long does it typically take for you to birth a book into the world from start to finish? I mean, including these 20 year gaps. Imagine there isn't a 20 year gap, in, you know, in another book situation. How long does it take? Because I think what you're saying is something that a lot of people struggle with, myself included. And it's really just starting the work, like starting to write and then continuing day and day and day and day after day. So what is the ritual that you have? Any tips for us? The ritual that I um, really adhere to when I'm writing a book is 
and it's not, it's, it's not always possible and it wasn't always possible for me and it's not always possible for people. So I don't want listeners to feel like, well, you know, what I was about to say was it begins with like first thing in the morning being sort of uninterruptible, getting a foothold, a toehold in the work um, before the rest of life intrudes every day. Because we, we live, all of us, such noisy lives and there's so much going on and there's so much input. There's so much overstimulation. If I reach a point of overstimulation, you know, I've read that day's news, I've checked my email, I've responded to 50 emails, I've, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I've, I've gone on social media, I've seen what all my friends all over the world are doing. That's not good for the work. If I've started the day in the sort of sacred process of, beginning to get the work done, then I can do all those things because I've already in a way ordered my mind or my priorities, my creative mind, um, so that my head's already in the game. But there were a lot of years where I had a young child at home and I couldn't do that. And I had to learn how to kind of do an end run around that and be fully present as a mother for my kid and then start my day over again when I got you know back from dropping him off at school. I, you know, they're, they're, I had to learn how to do that. Um, I have people often say, you know, well, I have, I have a job. How do I, you know, how do I write? It's like, well, get, you know, one of the beauties of the writing life is it helps you actually come to understand what works for you. What works for me might not work for you. Some people are night owls. I mean, by the, by the end of the day, I am so shut. I am so done that there is absolutely no possibility that I could get any work done. My husband can actually go, he's a writer as well, can, you know, get some work done, you know, at night. I like um, working during the daytime hours when I'm in step with the rest of the world, because even though what I'm doing is alone in a room, I like feeling like, you know, there are people out there who are also at work. I get into a rhythm. When I'm writing a book, it, it has tended to be about three pages a day. But if you think about three pages a day and what that means and moving forward, you know, I might, I might revise as I go, but moving forward. So three pages, pages a day, say you're writing five days a week, that's 15 pages a week. That's 60 pages a month. Of, of course, we're not machines and that ends up becoming, you know, there are days where that doesn't work, but really it's possible, I think, to write a draft of a book, you know, or you know, a draft of whatever it is you're working on that way. And then, um, you know, there's, there's, it's a really great feeling to start seeing that it's growing and to not get stopped by, well, what if it doesn't work? What if I've gone down the wrong path? What if that, what if that chapter, what if that idea, what if that digression doesn't work? It won't, that's, that's going to happen. And, and then you'll go back. It's sort of like you have, you know, as a writer, the blank page, is just blank. It doesn't have any character at all. When you finish a draft of, of, of something, you have something solid there. You have, it's like um, artists or sculptors who work in different media, like, you know, marble or wood, or, you know, they have the wood to work with. The blank page isn't the wood. You know, when you write a draft of something, then you have the wood, and then you can start seeing what the character of the wood is and carving into the wood and, or finding, you know, finding, finding the shape of it, but you have to, you have to write that first draft in order to be able to get there. I love the idea that if you're an artisan, you, you actually need to build your own material with your draft and then carve it into yeah. something 
visible. Wow. Have you thought about this before, Danny? Did you just make that up? No, I didn't. I have thought about this. I mean, Michelangelo said about the David, his famous sculpture, um, that the David was already in the marble. He was already there and he needed to chip away and find him. And I always was struck by that. Or once we, um, we walked into a a Japanese wood, woodworker's studio in, in New York and his work was magnificent. And I said to him, your work is magnificent. And he said, tree made work. And I just, that was just, that's what he said, tree made work. And I thought that's the same as Michelangelo saying that the David was trapped in the, in the marble. And, you know, the blank page doesn't have anything trapped in it. It's just there. And so when we create that initial, and that's why just allowing it to be, you know, be afraid of it, do it anyway. No one else is going to read it. No, it's not going to leap from your desk onto the shelf of your local bookstore. It's not going to, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to do anything bad. It's not going to be embarrassing. It's just yours for now. It's only yours. So let it be whatever it wants to be, allow it to take shape. And that's the discovery. And then revision which is something that scares writers a lot um, because it it just feels like, well, how do you do that? Then over time that actually becomes pleasurable because you already have something there that's like meeting you halfway. It's already, you know, you've already created something and then you're, 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 you're starting to shape it. It becomes like, you know, wet clay in, in, in your hands. One thing I can't stop thinking about is how the reality of being a full-time writer financially is very slim, right? And yet millions of people are writing every day. I mean, when you think about writing, yes, you can make a lucrative career, but even Michael was saying, he's like, Danny and I are very rare to have full-time careers getting paid well as writers. And it just blows my mind because when you think about that, what that means is that maybe a few people are getting paid for this, but this is something as humans, we're like hungry to do. The writing is not just something that you do to try to get rich quick. Like this is something that you would do whether you got paid to do it or not, because this is how you see life. This is how life sees you from what I'm hearing. Yes, that's very true. And as a, as a get rich quick scheme, it would be a very bad idea. Very bad idea. I can think of much better ideas. (laughs) Um, It has to come from a place of you have to do it. You have to do it. Writers com- compelled to, you know, to spend the best hours of her day doing this work. And, um, and it is a human imperative. I mean, cave dwellers etched their stories onto cave walls. Ever since we've had language, um, we have told stories. And so it is a human imperative. In terms of the practicalities of making a living at it, I mean, there are, there have definitely been times over all of these years where both Michael and I have had to be entrepreneurial, figure out, you know, we, I've, I've done all sorts of things over the years. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I've done those things to be able to keep on, you know, to keep the lights on and, you know, pay the babysitter and, you know, have food on the table. I mean, it ranges from, I mean, I don't really put teaching in that category because I've, I, I, I love to teach and, and I feel like it's part of the writing life to, to, to teach that that's part of, I learn myself when I'm teaching. I say things about writing that I think, huh, that's true. I've never thought of that before. I mean, it's very enriching and enlivening experience to, to be with students, but I've written for magazines at various times. I've been on the masthead of 
Travel and Leisure. I was on the masthead of of L. I, I wrote the back page of Travel and Leisure for years and years. I wrote a column called My Favorite Place that would I would interview people about their favorite place, and that would be the back page. I still get pitches from publicists where I'm like, "Honey, I don't do that anymore," but I did it. <laughs> like, take take me off your list. I am not, you know, no, I'm not. I'm not going on that free press junket to you know Mallorca. But that's something that you know I did for for a whole lot of years, and it was also enjoyable. But I was certainly doing it for the for the paycheck. We wrote for pharmaceutical company. I actually ended up writing about this in my memoir Hourglass. We wrote a play that we developed that actors performed in front of all sorts of corporate executives to explain, you know, the you know the the the, the reasons why a certain drug that then never got approved, you know, should be approved. You know, as we were doing that, that I remember thinking, oh my God, it's come to this, and yet that was actually something that became a fantastic story later and kind of a metaphor when I was writing my book about marriage for just, there was a story, I mean, it's too much to get into, but there was a story that happened that day that became central to my memoir, Hourglass. And by the way, at the time, I didn't tell anybody we were doing that. I was sort of, you know, half mortified. Now I think I'm talking to you about it, that many people will hear me tell this story and I'm telling it because I think it's really important to know that it's it is a process and it is a lifelong process and it is it's not and it's two step forwards one one step back. I mean, I just came back from a trip to London where uh, my British publisher had brought me over there to do events for my upcoming my novel Signal Fires is coming out in the UK in February and. Um, behind me on the big screen at the big event where I was speaking about it to journalists and critics and, and all sorts of media people was that it was my breakout novel. And I just have to laugh. Um, it, and it is. It is. But it's, it's my 11th book. Yeah, you, I messaged you because you had posted on your Instagram something that said, my debut novel. This, and I was like, that's bizarre. Yeah. And then you emailed yeah, me and no. you're like, Joe, this is the process. It is my 11th book and yet it's being considered a debut. How does that even happen? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I think what happens and it's really, I think, instructive. I mean, I really hope people really hear the story of my, the trajectory of my writing life because it's been all uphill and that is partly there's luck involved, but it's mostly that I kept my head down and wrote the next book and didn't succumb to a feeling of, you know, my career isn't where I hoped it would be at this point, or my best friend won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, true story, you know, and, you know, watching various of my, you know, people in my generation seemingly grabbed the brass ring. And then I would realize other people thought that I had grabbed the brass ring and that everybody was comparing, you know, their lives to everybody else's life. It's a disease. And I don't think it's just true among writers. I think it's true among humans, you know, and, and social media just pours gasoline on that where we're, we're always comparing. If at some point I had just thought, wow, I just, um, you know, this is too hard, then I wouldn't be here now. I think there was always a feeling that I was comparing, but I was comparing and competing with myself. And I just wanted each book 
to be a new mountain that I would climb and to be a better book than the last book, to be a stronger book, to be a leap, you know, a leap into the unknown. And that's how you get to a place where your 11th book is your, is your breakout book. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that because that's, that's tenacity. It's creative tenacity. And, um, and I think to be an artist requires that kind of tenacity always all through um, a creative life. Because one of the other things about a creative life is there is no retirement. I mean, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I guess, Philip Roth announced his retirement and it was the strangest thing. And it got a lot of press, partly because he's you know, a very important writer, but partly because no writer announces their retirement. We don't, reti- we don't retire. We, 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 we write until that, that, that pen is pried out of our cold, dead hands. And, and, and there is no retirement. When people talk about retirement, I, I have no idea what they're talking about. Why would you want to do that? I really think that, you know, I, I mean, how much can you perfect your, I don't know, your golf game or, or whatever it is that you do I, with your time? I, I, to me, not writing would be not living. And, and so I hope that, I hope that I continue and that my next book is another flying leap. That's, that's, that's all I want to do when I'm alone in the room. This is so inspiring, motivating. Oh, Danny, I'm just so happy you live 10 minutes away from me in Connecticut. That there's my return on investment of like relationships that really was. And I told you when I moved to that town, I knew no one, knew no one. I had never gone there before. And then I'm like, what are the odds? It's just an honor to have such deep conversations with you. They're some of my favorites. What would you say, if you have anything to say for this, what do you think keeps you motivated? Is it just because writing is how you see life or is there something else? That's such an interesting question. I think that, I think that writing is, is how I move through life and what, what keeps me I'm like deeply alive and and connected to the natural world, to what I'm witnessing, um, to other people. It's how I think. I I don't really know what I'm thinking until I supply language to it. Writing has brought so many incredible gifts into my life. The gift of other writers, of people, um, of you. Um, we wouldn't know each other. You You might've moved to that town 10 minutes away, we wouldn't have met if I weren't a writer who started this writing conference that you applied to. And so this is, and Sirenland, that conference has brought so many extraordinary people into each other's lives and into my life and into my husband's life. And I feel that way when I, I'm about to go out on the road and do a, a big book tour for, for, for signal fires. And I feel this extraordinary sense of connection and meeting people and having these conversations. I mean, in Inheritance, my last book, literally changed people's lives. And parents who had never told their children the truth about their identity were suddenly telling their children because they had read my book. And people were discovering all sorts of things because they read my book and they it, it opened. And, or then, and then the book, the book spawned the podcast and the podcast 
had people listening, you know, thinking about their, their own family secrets and exploring things that they had been afraid to explore. That was different from anything that I had ever experienced because it was true purpose. I mean, I, I would joke during that period of time that as a writer, my purpose was always that I wanted to be read. I wanted people to read my work, but now there actually was a sense of purpose in the world that lives were changing all over the world. Um, because of the experience that I had that then I turned into a book because I had the tools to do that because, because being a writer is what I am and this was my story. So I was able to, to shape it and create it into a book that then had this huge and continues to have this huge impact. I mean, that's unbelievably meaningful, but my writing life led me there. If I had, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are trying to write their stories about the same kind of discovery that I had. And I, I, I wish them luck and I want there to be more of these stories in the world, but I also know how hard it is to do that. I had, a, you know, decades and decades of experience and a toolbox as a writer that allowed me to open that toolbox and figure out what those tools were to tell that particular story. So that was a gift of all those years and all that experience that I, that I could figure out how to do that. But moving forward, I think it's really, it's really about connection. And, you know, all my life, what I have always longed to do is to connect. I don't like small talk. You know, I, at, at cocktail parties, it bores me to tears. How was your summer? How was your winter? What's going on? What's new? What's you up to? I, I just kind of, I've never been able to um, just sort of slide along on the surface and writing and the writing life allows for such rich and deep conversations. Um, I think that's why book clubs are so huge. I think book clubs are huge because people actually really want to have these deep conversations and sometimes we don't know how to have them and the book becomes a way of, you know, talking about really big feelings instead of just a vehicle for talking about really big feelings. When I think many of us really do want to talk about really big feelings. And um, so I, I get to be part of that. And, and I really love that. And I think that that's a huge part of what's meaningful to me. Everything that you say, I'm like bookmarking there. I'm going to repeat that later. One thing that you said earlier to me when we were, I don't even remember one of these deep conversations that we were having, because like you, I don't like small talk at all. And you said to me, you're like, you know, Joe, everybody has stories to tell. Not everybody knows how to tell them. And that is when you really look at writing as a craft with actual skill sets required that take decades of experience and teaching and going to things like workshops. Thank you for your wealth of knowledge, Danny. I really want you to come back on this podcast so we could talk about part two of life deep conversations. Anytime. Please. And maybe we'll do it in person with some martinis or something. <laughs> Watch out. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah. uh, one question that I always ask all of my guests before signing off is even though you've given millions of pieces of advice in this chat, is there one? main takeaway that you would suggest for somebody to start putting into their life today to be a not average Joe? I love that question. I don't think that there's an average Joe out there who 
first of all, I don't think there is an average Joe. So to understand that, to go back to that producer's wisdom to me um, when I was about to go on Oprah, um, that being your deeply being yourself, allowing that self to shine through and connect wherever you go and with whomever you encounter, that is a gift to the world for all of us. And we need those gifts. And if people don't share, we don't get to receive those gifts. So it's like the selfless duty that we all must do. Exactly. Danny, I love you. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank I'll see you. you soon and we'll have a real hug. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, so brilliant. Okay, let me stop. And that is it for the day. Thank you, Danny, for spending such a beautiful hour with me having this chat. It's such an honor to have a creative mind like you in my life. I will definitely be interviewing Michael, her husband, soon. And I guess that's the whole takeaway for me when it comes to this conversation about creativity. It's that when you honor your own journey, you start attracting other people that live creative lives. And that enhances the quality of how you experience life because a creative person is going to have an observed. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. They're going to notice these small details that people who aren't honoring their creative side will likely just completely miss out of sheer ignorance it's like an artistic mind an artistic eye honors beauty they honor pain they honor life they honor humanity they honor every little detail of the natural world because that's the only way you'll be able to convey it in your art and having these people in my life is so inspiring that i just want to attract more of them so thank you again, Danny, and don't forget to click in the show notes so that you can follow all of her work, pre-order her book. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate it five stars wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend, whether they're on a creative journey or they're writers. I'm sure that there's so many gems that they can get from this, and it's going to be a gift that keeps on giving because as you've heard many times on this show, if you refuse to give the world your art, we all suffer a little bit. Not only do you suffer, but the world suffers because we make art to connect to other people and to show them beauty and to show them pain and to show them just these facets of humanity that make life worth living. So please share this episode and I cannot wait to keep on talking about this because this is something I'm definitely passionate about. Follow me on Instagram at Joe underscore Franco to let me know what you thought. And if you like writing and like discussions, please join Joe Club. Because what Danny said about book clubs is absolutely accurate. People want these deep conversations. And I am basically creating the space for that through journaling. So bring your journals, bring your good ideas, bring your open minds and hearts. And I will see you on live journaling sessions twice a month. And I hope you have an above average week because you deserve it. Hey, yo, come listen to my girl, man. What you doing? Shit.